0: Hey caffeinators! welcome to the Vet Tech Cafe. The Vet Tech Cafe is a podcast centered around veterinary technicians and nurses, hosted by myself, Dave Cowan, and my good friend Jeff Backus. We strive to discuss current issues facing our profession and give our colleagues a voice and a medium to enter into these discussions. Our guests are experts in the veterinary field that we hope can help our listeners work towards dealing with these issues, as well as coming up with solutions that can lead to change. If you have a question, comment, or would like to be a guest on the Vet Tech Cafe, please contact us at vettechcafe at gmail.com, or you can find us at our website, vettechcafe.com. One thing we would ask of you, our listeners, is to rate and review us on whatever podcast platform you're listening to. We're not exactly sure how or why this helps us, but apparently it does. So without further ado, come on in, grab yourself a cup of coffee, and get ready for another episode of the Vet Tech Cafe.
1: Hey, caffeinators! Welcome back to another episode of the Vet Tech Cafe, the cafe with now locations in over eighty countries, including those of our next couple <laughs> of episodes. Dave, we're going worldwide for our um, our May Mental Health Awareness series. So, yeah,
0: we're expanding our brand.
1: Um, it's May caffeinators, which means May is Mental Health Awareness Month. Um, as we have done the last couple of years, we're doing a focus of our May episodes surrounding mental health awareness in our field and this this month we've kind of dedicated all three episodes to uh addiction of of our of our our substance abuse disorders that our um, colleagues have had or have have uh, had experience with so that's where we're going to focus our series this month so we hope you tune in and hopefully you guys can um learn some things about maybe some of our colleagues or some of our ourselves that that might be struggling with different things. So I think it's going to be a really interesting series. Dave, what do you think?
0: I think it's going to be great. And I I do love doing these mental health episodes because it's it's a focus that you and I have kind of like joined on to put the focus on mental health. So I I, I always love love these episodes. Um, You know, they're kind of a Mm -hmm. a deep dive into some usually really personal stuff, but hopefully we can all learn something from it because, you know, it's with addiction. What we're going to be talking about this month, you know, I don't have any experience yeah. with it. I, you know, I don't, I don't have anyone in my in my circle that I know of that that has been through that. So it's it's important, I think, for us to to talk about yeah, it. and learn yeah, about it. yeah, I think
1: so. And I, I think it's probably a lot more prevalent in our field than what we realize. And and so oh, I yeah, think there's easily. I think there's going to be some some really interesting and also some some really deeply personal discussions and some powerful stories so you know it's, it's a little bit different format for us than than our usual episodes but uh but i think really necessary if you're new to the vet tech cafe um again these episodes might be a little bit different than than kind of our standard interviews or format but you can definitely head over to vettechcafe.com for all of our info and, and where to find us all and like and subscribe to all our channels that'd be wonderful but We have um, we actually have a previous guest coming back to the cafe today, which doesn't (laughs) happen very often. So, um, caffeinators, you you may remember um, at the very very early stages of COVID, I think just as the US was becoming beginning to lock down, we had Amber Larock uh, on the Vet Tech Cafe. She has uh, an Instagram profile called at Vet Tech and Travel, and she was in. Cambodia, I believe at the time, and ended up coming back to the U.S. If I remember correctly, and now she's back abroad again. She's in back out in Thailand, uh, but she's a, a licensed veterinary technician with uh, 10 years' experience in veterinary medicine. Um, but now mostly has taken her career online and abroad, and does a lot of volunteer work abroad, and does a lot of writing, does a lot of blogging, and and has a very, very, very unique career path. So really, really fascinating stuff. Like I said, she's back out in Thailand now. And Amber, how are you? Uh, thanks for coming back by the Vet Tech Cafe again. What can we get you for a cup of coffee?
2: Oh, thank you so much for having me. I've been on like an iced latte kick recently. Um, So maybe an iced latte with oat milk. I know, I'm so no, sorry if that no, was No, not at all, not at
1: all. We can, we can <laughs> definitely work with that. <laughs> so. If you don't mind, I don't remember, um, you know, it's been so long since we last chatted with you. I don't remember if we really had guests kind of go through their career path back then. But if you don't mind, just take us through what got you into vet med, um, kind of how you got your start on what you're doing now, because I think that's super fascinating. I know a lot of other veterinary technicians think that stuff is super cool, yeah. too.
2: Yeah, Sure. So um, my path to vet med probably began like most people. Um, I grew up loving animals, and I was very lucky in the sense that I always knew I wanted to work with them in some way. And I think I started working as a kennel tech when I was like 16 in Mm -hmm. high school. And I realized, you know, I really like this, so I'm going to go to (laughs) school for it. (laughs) So um, I went to the uh, Cedar Valley Veterinary Technology Program in uh, Lancaster, Texas, And, you know, this is kind of where my story with addiction and alcoholism will really intertwine. But as far as just um, my career path, yeah, I graduated from college and I graduated in 2015. And it was that summer after I graduated that I took my first international volunteer trip. I remember I was just scrolling through Facebook and I saw an ad and it was asking, do you want to volunteer with elephants in Thailand? And I was like, of course. I would love to do that. So I applied for the program. I got accepted and that was my first international trip and everything was changed from that point on. I um, spent the next like four years of my career just working around the clock. I worked in an emergency animal hospital and I would use all my vacation time to go volunteer abroad. And I got to the point where I just didn't want those experiences to end and I was tired of working and living for those experiences and then going back and having to do it all over again so that's when i was trying to brainstorm ways that i could combine um, my veterinary career with traveling and that's when i started my writing business Um, i've always really loved writing and um, i started off i spent about six months just pitching different work to websites for free just to get exposure and get published work out there and after about six months of doing that, I got hired on by multiple different websites and it's almost like two and a half, almost three years later now. And this is my job. I write for pet health websites and I'm able to live wherever because I work remotely.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. I love it. And I, I know we may have asked you this question because uh, this is one of our more, more popular questions is, is where do you see the the veterinary technician profession right now and and As someone who's working abroad and has worked in the States, I'm sure you have a very unique perspective on, you know, how you're utilized versus how people are utilized in the States versus, you know, other, other, other countries.
2: Sure. Especially working internationally has showed me that I really think that there's like our, our career back home in the States can blossom into so many incredible paths. Like as each year goes by, I am exposed to more vet techs that have like multiple credentials behind their names uh vet techs that are specializing in just really cool ways and I just I think it's so impressive and how much we can grow in this field at this point so I do think that right now when I look at veterinary medicine I see the potential for so much growth in the professional aspect of things but also in terms of mental health uh, what we're talking about today I have noticed over the last couple of years that a lot of people are a lot more open to having those tough discussions so i'm hoping that going forward you know while we're taking on these increasingly difficult tasks and growing in our profession we can also have those tough conversations and i really do see that for our future
1: okay so amber thinking about your answer to the veterinary technician profession and kind of where we are right now if, if you had a magic wand to wave and you could fix one thing that you think might be the most important domino to fall or the biggest what would that be and and what what is it you would do to kind of help change the course of our profession and set us off in a new direction
2: i think personally the the most important thing that we could do like all for each other as a whole is just be a bit more compassionate to our colleagues because I think at the end of the day, that will make the most impact when it comes to our mental health as a profession. Because while I do agree that a lot of the complications that we struggle with each day do have to do with, you know, difficult clients or really tough cases, at the end of the day, when you have your coworkers that you can lean on and you feel like you're in a supportive environment, that makes everything so much better. So I think just in general, having more compassion for the people that we work with, trying to be a bit more understanding of the fact that every time each of us walk into work that day we're bringing in our own baggage from home so yeah i think just general kindness and compassion for each other
0: love it yeah that's 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 so true it it's almost like i don't want to say we're in wartime right now with with our jobs but to use the the terminology going to battle you know if, if your your yeah. coworkers don't have your back like yeah. we're, we're all on an island and it's it makes yeah. everything so much yeah. more difficult and that's why everyone leaves cuz they're Struggling and hating, yeah,
1: and and vice versa too. If if you don't have their back, you know, it's it's yeah, definitely, yeah,
0: for sure. That's a that's a. I don't know how you wave that magic wand (laughs) and people do that. Yeah, that'd be tough. Right, right. right. If I could,
2: if I could, I would do it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Amber, our, our mental health focus for May centers around addiction and you've been very open and honest with your struggles with, with addiction. So can you share with our listeners a little bit about your story and and kind of take us off on that path?
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, it may be a bit of a like a long and winding story, but <laughs> I'll, tr- I'll try my best for sure. But um, so I think like a lot of people you know your struggle with alcoholism or addiction can start with childhood trauma or an unstable childhood and that's definitely where mine began and because of that um, i developed um, a personality disorder called borderline personality disorder or bpd and i didn't even know that i had it until a few years into my sobriety when i was finally diagnosed But because of that and my past experiences, I kind of went through my childhood in my early uh, teenage and adult years, just not really understanding why I was constantly in mental turmoil. Like it just always felt like chaos in my own head. So when I was introduced to drugs, when I was a teenager around 14 or 15, I realized that it was a wonderful escape. And from that moment on, um, I didn't really develop any healthy coping mechanisms because I knew that I could do this to escape what I'm currently feeling. And I took that habit with me into my adulthood. So it really, it started in my teenage years with just experimenting with drugs. And when alcohol became more accessible when I was about 19 or 20, is when I kind of transitioned to alcohol. And it's also hard too, because those are the years that I was getting into my college years. And it's kind of normalized uh, when you're young it's really hard to say like, I'm a 20 year old alcoholic. You know, there's a lot of excuses that you make for yourself. So in my college years is when things really started to spiral. Um, I went from just being a normal partier to blacking out, you know, five to six times a week, putting myself in some really dangerous situations. And it was about when I turned 23 years old is when life just turned upside down for me in virtually every way. I got to the point that I was in financial ruin, essentially. I had ruined relationships with everybody that I loved, my family, my friends, everything. I was getting in trouble at work. I was close to being fired and I had gotten into some big legal trouble. So it was finally then that I realized something has to change. And if I continued down the path that I was on, I was either going to be dead or in prison. And I hated both of those options, obviously. And my family yeah, either sounded very fun to me. So um, and also like my family, just they were pleading with me. You you have to stop living like this. And when I think back on the stress that I put my family through, it just breaks my heart. But um, yeah, so I got sober when I was twenty three. I am twenty nine now, so I'm six years sober and
0: congratulations. Thank you.
2: But yeah, that's kind of my winding path to um, eventual sobriety, I guess.
0: <laughs> yeah. And you mentioned in there borderline personality disorder, mm-hmm. and you don't have to go into a whole deep dive of what that is, sure. but does that contribute to alcoholism or did alcoholism contribute to that? Uh, like a chicken and sure. egg sort of situation. <laughs> right, which
2: came first? <laughs> um, definitely, uh, substance abuse in general is a, like, huge symptom of borderline personality disorder. Um, I I can't remember the statistics exactly, but it's one of the um, characteristics of the condition because so many people with it abuse substances because it's just kind of miserable, especially when it's unmanaged and you're not yet diagnosed. So um, yeah, of course I can't know for sure um, because I mean, who knows, but I, of course, I personally think that it played a huge role in the decisions that I made.
1: Mm-hmm. And, you okay. know, thinking about our work and our career and our profession, we've already kind of talked about a, just a couple of the the challenges that we have um, in this field between the clients, the coworkers, the staffing, the hours, on and on and on and on and on. How do you feel your job or your position in this field contributed to that or, or did it? And also, yeah. you know, kind of. In this field, we have unique access to drugs, to different things. Like, you know, how, how do you feel like this job or being around that contributed or did it?
2: Definitely. I, th- I think it contributed 100%. And I feel like it's so common in this field for that reason. And... We just have a really unique combination of stressors working in veterinary medicine it's not just working a hard job there's so much like mental anguish that comes along uh-huh. with it as well um and just in so sort of many different levels so personally yes i do think that my work played a major role in the spiraling of my alcoholism um, when I, Because I was working in emergency and critical care, but this can be the case for anybody no matter where you're working. But I was working really long hours, you know, 12 to 16 hour shifts. I was dealing with a high volume of really critical patients, really sad cases, clients that couldn't afford to treat their pets, coworkers that are stressed because we work in such a stressful environment. So it makes perfect sense why you walk out of your shift just mentally exhausted in every way and you're looking for an escape. You know, we all care about our work so much, so I think it makes perfect sense as to why substance abuse is actually so common in this field because we're all just looking for an escape. You know, our jobs are hard.
0: The job kind of contributes to it. and. You know, I think back to my younger days, many, many years ago, and the times that I went into work after a night of of drinking too much, and just how exhausted I was that day, and and saying to myself, why, why would I do this again? Yeah. How did how did your addiction itself affect your work? I can't imagine like going into work either drunk or hungover. Yeah. You know, multiple days in a row, like like you're describing.
2: Yeah, it was miserable absolutely i I don't know how i did it honestly i have no idea but um i was like so painfully hungover for like so many shifts all the time and it also like it affected my work in the sense that i was just a really unreliable employee i was calling into shifts all the time sometimes i would just miss shifts like i would no call no show I was also hmm. feeling terrible throughout my shift, so I'm sure many times I wasn't the best person to work with because I was miserable. So, I mean, there's there's so many ways that it impacted my work, and it eventually got to the point that I was going to be fired, you know? So, I had to talk to my boss about the things I was experiencing, and soon after that is when um, I went to rehab and got sober, so... I definitely, if I wouldn't have changed something, I I wouldn't have been able to keep that job.
0: And then so based on industry trends, do you think addiction is widespread in the field? I I know you said that there's probably more than we know about, but do you think it's widespread?
2: So much so, definitely. I think not too long ago I saw that there was a statistic, and this is just about veterinarians, that about 13 to 15 percent of veterinarians have a substance use uh, issue, And that's just veterinarians and that's just reported cases, you know, so I can even imagine how high the number actually is, but yeah, it has to be so widespread because like the things that we just talked about, the the stressors that we face each day at work and how easy it is to spiral a veterinary professional into potential substance use disorder, because you think all it takes is just like a really bad shift, a bad month at work, combination with your own personal like trauma that's occurring at home because you know it's normal for people to come home and say you know I'm gonna have a drink to like unwind after a long day well it very easily turns into a few drinks and then it easily turns into a standard habit that you do every day after work and before you know it you're in a really dangerous cycle and you're using that to cope and I see that happen so often. I know colleagues that it's happened to and I've heard a lot of stories from veterinary professionals and a lot of them start off similarly to that.
0: Yeah, and, and that like you said, thirteen to fifteen percent is probably a low number, right? Because mm-hmm. there's there's probably people that are not I don't wanna say found out, but not They're hiding it. Not out there that they, yeah. they have they have a problem. Definitely. Meaning that there's like a lot of deception going on and you know, again that that's I guess that's another coping mechanism of of the disease is is trying to hide it.
2: For sure. And yeah, it's, there's so many layers to it, but another big obstacle is when you're a licensed veterinary technician or a veterinarian, a lot of people don't come forward because there's a risk of losing your license. There's a risk of losing your job. I know personally veterinarians that have lost um, their license or their ability to prescribe controlled substances when they come forward with some type of substance use disorder. So you already feel such like intense shame in those moments when you realize that you're struggling with this, but imagine coming forward and realizing, okay, not only am I in such a low place, but I also run the risk of losing everything that I love. So you, you can totally understand why so many people are in hiding. Right.
1: right. Yeah, for sure. You know, if you're a a veterinarian or a practice owner, you know, you have, you know, the weight of the hospital, the whole staff, that's, you know, counting on you for, for jobs, for all of those Mm -hmm. things. So, I imagine there's a lot of fear in terms of, you know, that maintaining that license or being able to keep it. But then also the shame like if if you do lose that license and letting everybody down and I just yeah,
0: I I can't imagine. Yeah.
2: It's a lot to carry.
0: Well also we we have the one of the personality traits of technicians is that we're like overachievers and perfectionists to some degree and admitting that there's a problem or that we're not perfect or we can't do everything that 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 also has to play a role into it as well i would think of
2: course i'm sure yeah Yeah. there's so many layers to it. it makes it so difficult
1: yeah and so i i live in california and we do have a through our veterinary medical board a diversion program where you know if you um are willing to go through the steps i i I don't know what they are but you know if you say get a dui or you have to go to rehab or what have you um, as long as you're not abusing your license for access to certain things you know they'll they'll basically hold your license until you know you've completed their program or gone through their steps and you know basically you can pick up in the profession where you left off as a licensed employee but I, I, yeah. I, I'm not aware of too many other states, really, of any that, that do that or have a program like that in place. And yeah. it's, uh, I mean, I'm sure it's a lot to set up, but at the same time, maybe just eliminating one small little layer of that, you know, may be helpful for some people. Totally.
2: Well, a million percent. And thankfully, there are veterinarians that are in recovery and who have experienced these lows themselves and the threat of losing their licenses, their jobs, their practices. There are veterinarians that are advocating for um, uh, like return to work programs. So hopefully as the years go by, that will be something that not only vets can explore, but veterinary technicians as well. But you're right, it's not super widespread. So as of right now, there's still a lot of people that are hiding yeah. their struggles.
1: Yeah. And I wonder if that's any different on the human side. Like, I, I wonder if there's some model there that and maybe not, I, I don't know, you know, but if there's something that we could model there to to make an improvement there in our field, because as we've described yeah. already, it's it's far more widespread than I think we give give it its due credit for. Yeah.
2: Definitely. Definitely.
0: And we, you mentioned in there, you know, we talked about like deception and, you know, kind of hiding this thing. Did you have coworkers that you confided in that, that knew what you were going through, like as you were going through it?
2: Um, not as I was going through it. Well, there was like a practice manager that I had to talk to about time off because I needed to enter rehab, but that yeah. was literally as in depth as it went. <laughs> yeah. Um aside from that, no, I really kept it to myself because there's such a stigma when it comes to alcoholism or addiction. And I can understand why because a lot of people have been hurt by an alcoholic or an addict in their personal lives. So people automatically have that wall up. Um it doesn't make it right, but it it's just happens. And I knew that there was a stigma in my practice in particular. And all it takes is a couple subtle things being said occasionally. Like um, if someone comes into the practice that has maybe had a problem with abusing drugs in the past, colleagues will make little jokes about hiding the meds. Or saying like, like little snide remarks about clients, calling them like derogatory terms when it comes to drug use. Little things like that when you hear talk like that around you, it makes you think, okay, I really can't talk to anybody about this. Right. And it's, it's not, and it's not that people wouldn't understand if you did. I just don't know if people realize how impactful those little remarks are of small judgments. So maybe it was about six months into my sobriety where I did share a little bit with some colleagues, but I was not totally open about talking about my recovery until I was about a year into my sobriety is when I finally felt proud, to actually put it out there and realize that it was a, an accomplishment rather than something that I really need to hide from other people.
1: Did you did you feel like at all you know it, it, because you just mentioned about you know six months later or so you talked to a couple of people about it? Did you ever feel like because you were so young that like you're twenty three years old? How can you already be an alcoholic? Like how can you already be going to yeah. rehab? You know, like was there any almost like kind of a, a a doubtful or negative reaction. Like I, I can't imagine yeah. <laughs> that's helpful at all. And I can imagine that just contributes. I-
2: totally. Um, and it also contributed in how long I put off realizing that I had a problem because there's so many like stereotypes that we have in our head about what an alcoholic or an addict looks like. Yeah. So even though everything else in my life was collapsing, I had this vision in my head where, you know, I'm, I'm not, struggling to pay my rent. I'm, you know, I have a roof over my head. I have family support. So I can't be an alcoholic, you know? Um, I haven't hit rock bottom yet, whatever rock bottom is, even though I totally did. But yeah, there's a lot of those stereotypes that people feel like you have to hit in order to actually have a problem. Yeah. And I did experience that um with myself personally, like I just said, and yeah, also with my my coworkers. One thing, you know, a lot of people said is, I would have had no idea. I thought you were just like having fun because that aspect is kind of normalized when you're young. And yeah, it, it's it's crazy to think about that because when I did go into rehab, like 75% of the people in there with me were my age or younger. Oh, wow. So yeah. And of course, there were some people who were older, but a lot of those people had been in rehab multiple times and started their process of recovery when they were close to my age at the time. So I think we should really work on kind of banishing that um, because age has Mm -hmm. nothing to do with it. And um, yeah, yeah, I definitely got that look a lot like "Ah, you're 23. You're just having fun.
1: Yeah. I, I, I asked that just because when I was a young kid, my grandmother was an alcoholic and that's the only person in my life I've known that's well, at least that I've known about that's struggled with alcoholism and she was in her, I'm going to say 60s at the time and I think I just had yeah. it in my head that it was 40 years of drinking that finally you know was accumulated and culminated in in this now and her later in her life and I never yeah. you know I never would have thought of that being a a problem for somebody
0: so young so I I probably would have been one of those yeah. people.
2: <laughs> yeah, totally.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I think the stigma is the stigma is like the the you know someone that's been drinking since they were a teenager and mm-hmm. now they're 40 and the kids are growing up and and yeah they're doing right. it to cope and and not actually accepting the fact that somebody so young can actually have and i i think it's also the the fact that we Assume that they're they're not going to get help until they right. have hit rock bottom, like you said. Mm-hmm. We don't really associate it with people that say, "Whoa, this is getting out of hand." I've been drinking for like right, three years right. or, or four years or whatever, yeah. and I need to do something about this. Totally. I, I think we kind of brush off the people that actually get help before yeah. they hit that definitely that rock bottom moment that it's, it's kind of dismissed, I guess. Yeah,
2: it's so true. I remember I saw, I think it was a TikTok not too long ago. I follow a lot of sobriety accounts, but it was a girl um, who was also in her young twenties. And the video was saying, you know, when I was in active addiction, this is what it looked like for me. And I think she was like, I passed the bar exam. I, you know, graduated from college. I got married. So it's like all these huge milestones that you don't associate with addiction and alcoholism. So just realizing that it could look different for everyone. And we really have to like Get these stereotypes out of our head because it, it means nothing.
1: That's an excellent point for sure. And 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 you mentioned earlier too, you know about um you know the having the compassion for your coworkers. The reality is we don't know what that person is going through, what has led to that, you know, substance yeah. abuse, addiction, alcohol, drugs, whatever it may be. There there's there's something deeper there. They're not you know, and, and we don't know what that is, oh, yeah. and and that's that's not for us to know unless they want to to tell us about it. Having that
0: compassion and understanding and not just brushing it off. Yeah. Definitely. Well, why don't we take a little break here and uh, we'll talk about your recovery after the break. Mm -hmm. Um, But we'll be back after these few messages. The Vet Tech
1: Cafe is sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp Online Therapy will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. And you can start communicating in under 48
0: hours. It's not a crisis line and it's not self-help. It's professional therapy done securely online. That's more affordable than traditional in-person therapy, and financial aid is available.
1: Caffeinators receive 10% off the first month using BetterHelp.com/vettechcafe. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, to join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced
0: professional. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your therapist and you'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy. Don't take
1: our word for it. Visit their website and read their testimonials that are posted daily at betterhelp.com reviews. That's BetterHelp, hel
0: slash reviews. If you want to take charge of your mental health, visit betterhelp.com/vettechcafe and get started today and get 10% off your first month. Be well caffeinators. All right, welcome back everybody to the VetTech Cafe where a would you rather question is the hardest question we're going to give you. So Amber we just had our ad for BetterHelp, and one of the questions we'd like to ask coming out of the break is, how do you manage your mental health now? I, I know we're, we're talking all about mental health during this episode, but how do you manage your, your mental health n- now?
2: Yeah, um, so I'm actually going, I utilize therapy a lot throughout my recovery, and now I'm about to start seeing a therapist here in Chiang Mai, so I'm very excited about that. But um, to me personally, it's just kind of about listening to my body at this point and allowing myself to feel the things that occur like for example if i feel like i'm having you know a really low day for whatever reason i just make sure to really cater to myself that day maybe that could be um setting aside a few hours to read a good book taking a nap (laughs) whatever it may be (laughs) um i'm really big about just listening to my body and what it's telling me in that moment and not fighting it yeah so i guess just utilizing therapy listening to my body taking breaks when i need to and um making sure i get some animal time since i work you know online
1: (laughs) yeah you know i want to ask about you know with with you working online i'm i'm a fairly new remote employee myself working for the uh aspca animal poison control center and it's been now a year and a half since i've worked in a hospital with physical coworkers, and i i feel a little bit isolated at first the first few months it was it was actually kind of nice for my introverted self to not have people around <laughs> all the time and not deal with clients, yeah. but somewhere along the way, I actually found myself missing physical interaction with coworkers, and I, I never really thought that I would. I'm wondering, you know, for you, you're obviously halfway around the world. Um, far more isolated than than what I am and as a remote employee. Like, is that a struggle for you in any way? Is that cathartic? Has that helped? Does that make things worse?
2: Yeah. Um, Yeah, it's funny because I can totally relate in the sense of being just like a chronic introvert. I love being alone. (laughs) But, um, yeah, surprisingly, it actually did impact me. I never thought that it would. But it was probably about like six to eight months into my remote working that I realized like okay I actually do kind of miss being in the presence of other people and it also hit me when I started traveling and like volunteering internationally was that I didn't realize how much that I would actually realize that okay you do need a support system wherever you are and it's not just enough to talk to your family and friends back home you actually need a support system where you are so that's when I Made it a priority to wherever I was located, I would actively put myself out there to make friends. Whether that's, you know, striking up a conversation with the person that I see at the cafe all the time, um, making sure that I immediately get signed up with volunteering at a clinic wherever I am, because I almost always meet wonderful, like minded people doing that. And then also, like on Instagram, it's actually been a wonderful way to meet friends, veterinary professional friends as well. If I know that somebody's currently living in that city, I'll just send them a message and say, hey, I don't have a lot of friends here. Do you want to hang out? And I've made the best friends that way. So yeah, it definitely can get lonely sometimes working remotely. Um, but I, I feel like I can make up for that loss by outside of work, really putting myself out there and trying to create a circle of support.
0: Maybe I'm more of an introvert than, than the two of you are. But the <laughs> thought of reaching out to someone on Instagram and saying, hey, do you want to hang out? Like, I would never do that. (laughs) I was thinking the
1: same thing. I was like, I, I, that's, that's amazing that that you're doing that. I just, I, I like, it it took a little bit. I, I bet. I'm sure. I, I don't even know that that thought would cross my mind. I, that's, that's part, that's the problem. It's not like a conscious thing to say, no, I'm not going to do that. Like, I, I just, I don't even know if I would have that thought. And that's so amazing, though, that, like, what a time to be alive that you can connect. And yeah, p- with people yeah. in that way totally. and, and still form those relationships, because I was thinking as you were describing that, like, gosh, you know, remember being a kid on the playground and you just walk up to a kid yeah. and you just start <laughs> playing and whatever I else, know. like, when do we lose that?
2: <laughs> right. I know. And it's funny. I totally get what you're saying, because when I first started traveling, I could never imagine doing that. But it took a couple of years with me realizing, okay, I'm like really lonely. Like I Yeah. Need friends. Yeah. So then I was like, okay, stop being silly, stop being shy, put yourself out there. And when I did, I feel like I've always like formed such a wonderful like small circle of friends. So it's just try it.
0: <laughs> you <can laughs> love it. I love it.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so why don't we t- start talking about your 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 recovery? So describe the process of you know making that decision. Like, was there an aha moment that you said? I need to do this right now and I need to fix this. Um, So talk about the process and what led you to that decision.
2: So it's funny. I feel like if you ask a lot of addicts or alcoholics, they'll tell you that it was just like a random day that they decided to get sober. And that's kind of what it was for me as well. Um, I had a lot of big moments up until I got sober or before I got sober that should have scared me out of it. It should have set me straight and it should have made me realize you have to stop. But they did it. And it was just... A random day after a really bad night of drinking that I woke up and I was exhausted and not only was I exhausted my poor mom was just absolutely exhausted and so I just finally realized like I first of all I feel miserable I'm making everybody in my life miserable I don't see how I can continue on living this way so I have to make a change And um, I went to my parents and asked if they would, you know, support me in going to rehab, how we could make this work. And at that point, you know, my family was willing to do anything to help me get sober because they were just so exhausted. Yeah, that's when I made the decision to go to rehab. And I was in rehab for about a month. And thankfully, I've only had to go to rehab once. I know that there's a lot of people that have had to go multiple times. But I will say, though, that. It wasn't just one time of me trying to get sober and then I was good. Um, I did relapse quite a few times. So, and that's actually pretty normal in the uh, recovery journey. There were a lot of times that, you know, before the time that I officially got sober, that I went a month without drinking, but then I would relapse. or I would go a couple weeks. I think the longest that I went was like two months. So I did relapse a few times, but when I finally went to my family and asked about rehab is when I ultimately stayed sober.
1: Gotcha. Um, You know, I'm curious, before you went to rehab, um, you know, you talked about, you know, some of the excesses there. Were there ever any physical ailments otherwise that you experienced as well as a result of of your alcoholism? Like, were you sick frequently or, or anything else? You know, obviously you were young and otherwise healthy, but like, did that, did that catch up with you in, in any of that kind of way?
2: Yeah, actually. Yeah, that's interesting. I've never really talked about that. But um, in both ways, before, during my addiction and after. So while I was drinking, I just was so unhealthy. I was getting sick all the time. I was exhausted. I was absolutely exhausted. And mental health-wise, I was just in absolute shambles. I try to think back to like the way that I was feeling in those last couple of weeks before I stopped drinking. And the only way that I can describe it is I was just like numb at that point. Um, I was just like a shell of a person. But one of the ways that it has actually affected me still to this day is I really struggle with balance. Um, a lot of people who are heavy drinkers for a substantial time in their life, they experience damage to their balance centers in their brain. And that is definitely me. It's improved as the years have gone on, but I remember when I first got sober, it was like a big aha moment to me when I was in rehab and there was this one, because they all kind of wanted us to like exercise a few times a week, but there was one movement that I could not do without falling over and I was getting so frustrated and the therapist told me like, this is normal and it was something so simple. Yeah, thankfully, I don't struggle with it that much anymore, but ask any of my friends, I fall a lot, I trip a lot, <laughs> I get dizzy a lot, but like... <sighs> I'm just um I would like to say it's because I'm just a clumsy person, but that's actually not true like i I kind of did this to myself in a lot of ways, so yeah it it can not only impact your mental health but your physical health as well
0: and you mentioned in there that you only thankfully only had to go to rehab once do you, do you feel like that is because you were so young um i know we we talk about the stigma of the you know the older. Uh, alcoholic that has to go to rehab over and over and over again do you think it's because you were so young and kind of early on I don't want to say early on in your in your addiction but do you you feel like that played a role in why you only had to do it once
2: yeah you know I really don't know I ask myself this a lot because like I said before there were so many people that I met in rehab where this was like their fourth fifth sixth time yeah so I really don't know what it was personally me. I think it was a pride thing because I remember getting (laughs) out of it and I was like, I can do this. I'm going to do this. It's, you know, like I told everybody that I was going to, and I'm going to do it. So personally, I think it was just me being hard headed and me having the right support system, helping me get through it. And my family at that point was really holding me accountable. I think when I got out of rehab, my parents made me stay with them for a few months. Um, because they didn't want me to go back to my place. Because a big thing for me was like when I was alone, Miss um, when I would spiral a lot. So, you know, there's probably a lot of factors. But I think ultimately for me, it was just, you know, I said I was going to do this and I'm going to do it. And I had a really great support system. But
0: uh, yeah. Gotcha. And uh, what other mental health practices right now do you currently use to maintain your sobriety? Is, is, that, a, is that a struggle at all or, or has it become easier as the, t- as the years have gone on?
2: As far as like um, sobriety in the sense of, you know, having cravings and like um, staying away from temptation, I'm very thankful that I don't struggle in that sense anymore. I can confidently say that I no longer want to drink. I have absolutely no desire to drink. And I know that I am an alcoholic to my core because the only time that I do want to drink is when I had a really bad day and I want to escape it. And I'm able to rationalize now that no, like that's your alcoholic brain talking and you don't need to do that. Um, so I'm lucky in the sense that I don't struggle with cravings anymore, but I do still struggle with my mental health. Um, it's something that still impacts me to this day and getting sober does not fix all of that. If anything, it kind of unmasks all, a lot of those hidden things. Therapy was really big for me from the beginning of my sobriety, especially Um, still up until now, you know, I went some time without it and I realized I need to start it again. So I'm doing that again. And then just making sure to live a life that just makes me happy. You know, this is kind of a big reason why I work remotely and why I like to have location independence, because I realize that it's what makes me happy. It's like my driving force. And um, yeah, I just try to I don't know, live a life as authentically to myself as I can, I guess.
1: Earlier on in your sobriety, was it difficult to to kind of keep that at bay? I remember when we were talking, you know, I think actually our first mental health episode, Dave, I think was with Kim Speltz. And she was talking about anxiety and depression and kind of this gave us this analogy of walking along the shoreline and the wave coming in and out of, of anxiety and depression, that's what it was. It would never really got never really went away. It was always kinda there and you just hoped the tide stayed out. Was it that did you feel that kind of way earlier on in sobriety that it was always a conscious thing to, to have to make that choice to stay sober? You said now you don't really yeah. fight those cravings anymore, but I imagine that wasn't that way early on.
2: Definitely, yeah. It probably took about a year into my sobriety for me to get to the point that I wasn't fighting off cravings and I could finally rationalize the difference between wanting to drink and wanting to escape my problems. But that first year into my sobriety, especially the first few months, were um, really hard. And I had to separate myself from anything that was a trigger, basically. I was spending less time with friends that I used to party with. Um, I was avoiding certain outings, like even things as simple as like going to my going to dinner with my friends. If I was having a particularly weak day, I wouldn't do it because I thought maybe I would be exposed to something that would trigger me. So I had to be really conscious of that um, in the beginning of my sobriety, definitely. But I think once I hit like around that year mark is when something finally clicked and I wasn't feeling like I was missing out on something anymore. I was realizing, okay, this is actually I, I gifted myself with a wonderful opportunity to live a full life and I'm gonna continue on down this path so
0: gotcha is it is it difficult now to be around people that are that are drinking or or like, I don't want to say partying because you probably don't go out and party now, but do (laughs) do you find it difficult to be around people that are drinking or do do you just not have friends in your circle that are that are drinkers now?
2: So I mostly don't have friends in my circle. And (laughs) and when I guess when I say drinking, um, you know, like some of my friends will still have like a drink at dinner or something. and, Mm. And that doesn't that doesn't bother me by any means. But I do not really spend time with people that drink heavily, just for one reason is it can be triggering just like in the sense of bringing back memories and things like that. But also it's just, yeah, it's not my idea of a good time anymore. I'm also like to be in bed by 9 p.m. sharp. So <laughs> a lot of things that happen after that time period, I'm just not interested in. But yeah, so just a couple of drinks here and there, like something casual, it doesn't bother me, thankfully. But I, I do, I guess, still kind of pull away from people that a little too hard for my liking and there's something mm-hmm. wrong with that it just
1: doesn't work for me yeah <laughs> right yeah for sure and along those lines you know going through rehab and sobriety you probably had to detach from that group of friends to some degree mm-hmm. how, how how was that received by them like w- were you outcast in any way or you know like w- was that a struggle at all to to say break away from that group of friends
2: Sure. Um, So there were a small circle of close friends that I did party with a lot, but they were really supportive, thankfully. Okay. Uh, But then there were also like acquaintances that I had in my party circle that, of course, I didn't speak to them. And it's not surprisingly, nobody checked in. They never do. Mm. They, You know, like a lot of times those friends are pretty superficial and they don't really care about your well-being. But the ones that were in my close circle, I was very open with them about what I was experiencing and they kind of adapted our friendship to be something that we all needed from each other. We weren't going out whenever I would be there. Um, We would have more low-key evenings whenever I was there. So um, I I never felt judgment from any of them, but there were, of course, some acquaintances and people that I thought were kind of my good friends that I partied with that really wanted nothing to do with me or my life. And that is hard to accept at first. It's like FOMO, you know, like you're just (laughs) watching them like have all this fun, you know? So I did have to remove a lot of those people. I remember on my social media, I just had to clear out a lot of stuff that just wasn't good for me and realize that it's not a personal thing um, because that, that is something that a lot of people struggle with is some people aren't as lucky as I am in the sense of having those supportive friends. Some people lose every single person in their life and that's so hard. And to those people who are experiencing that I think it's so incredibly important to find a support group in those early days and even if it's not something that you continue moving forward with AA or NA is a good example of that I never did like the full 12 step program but in the first few months of my sobriety I did go to AA because it was really important for me to see examples of you know what I was experiencing and always having somebody that I could talk to if I needed to, that actually understood what I was going through. And that's so important in that beginning stage. So I do recommend finding a group in, you know, that those first few months where it's going to be really hard, especially if you don't have a lot of people.
0: Thinking back to your old group of friends that you would hang out with and party with and, you know, eventually lead you into those, those bad behaviors, mm-hmm. did any of them later on see what you had gone through and, and followed your recovery and said, hey, maybe I have a problem too. and Maybe I need to, to deal with it.
2: Nobody really came to me directly, but I heard stories of people. There's like people who have relapsed. There's people who have like died in car accidents um, hmm. or not relapsed, overdosed and things like that. And then there are friends who I have like um, a big, you know, blowout with maybe when I was in like the like the deep end of my alcoholism Mm -hmm. that have actually reconnected with me in my sobriety. And we've been able to hash things out. So some of those things have come full circle, which is really nice. But yeah, unfortunately, there are Mm. some people who didn't make it to, Mm -hmm. you know, on the other end. for sure.
0: Yeah. And now for somebody that's on this side of addiction, um, what would you recommend to someone who wants to be supportive of a colleague or a loved one that's kind of going through what you went through?
2: This might be a little controversial. I know everybody feels a different way about this, but I personally am not a fan of the tough love approach.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I just feel like in the majority of the time it does more harm than good. There's I think there's a big difference between enabling an addict and an alcoholic than being there for an alcoholic or an, um or an addict. Because like when you're just cutting someone off completely all it does is like bring them further shame. They're already so low. They're already so embarrassed of their situation. They already hardly have anybody in their corner that wants anything good for them. And when you just cut off these people, then it just can cause you to spiral. It can bring you to an even lower place. So while I do think it's really important to set boundaries and make sure that you're not continuing to enable or being taken advantage of by this person that's in the middle of their addiction, I hope that you can find a way to be there for them in a way that is safe for your mental health. So um, maybe just making sure that they know you can always talk to me without judgment. I may not enable you in this way that you're looking for, or I may not offer you this exact thing that you're looking for, but I will be here. I'm a phone call away, let me know if you need me. Something as simple as that, I think goes a really long way because somebody in their active addiction is already starting to isolate themselves and cutting someone off will only cause them to further isolate themselves. And why would we wanna do that? You know. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm just not a fan of the tough love approach. I'm sure that there's so many people who like found sobriety because of that, and that's amazing. But I just feel like it does more harm than good a lot of the time.
1: One of the things I, I was kind of curious about, we in our field, I feel like no matter what area of the field you're in, there's a group of like-minded people in our field on Facebook. Like there's these there's these groups or or different things where you can. Connect with, with people that are maybe applying for the same application or or in the same specialty or whatever it is. And and Caffeinator's a little bit of a spoiler alert here. We actually had recorded this episode a few days ago, <laughs> but there was some technical <laughs> difficulties. So we're we're um, re-recording this portion of the interview. But um, I had asked you about <laughs> this last time, you know, is there a group for recovery for, you know, veterinary technicians or or what have you on Facebook? Were you aware of that? And so expand on that a little bit now.
2: Yeah. So as of like a week ago, there wasn't. And after we had that conversation, I went to Facebook and did like a search. I was like looking for all the keywords. I was like, there has to be right. Like, but there wasn't, there wasn't even anything about like alcoholism addiction there. I couldn't find like any posts, nothing. It was really shocking. So I was like, yeah, I'm just going to make a Facebook group. Like, why not? I'm going to do it. So, um, yeah, I, I think I've, It's been set up for like three days and there's already like 150 members. (laughs) Wow. Um, I named it. Yeah, I named it Veterinary Professionals in Recovery. I actually got um, a colleague. um, He's a veterinarian. His name is uh, Dr. Philip Richmond and he is uh, sober as well. Um, He is a former addict and he actually does, he's the veterinarian that I talked about earlier that's helping to advocate for like a safe return to work programs. And he saw that I created the group and he was like, hey, do you wanna tag team with this? I actually have a lot of experience in therapy of like PTSD, um, substance abuse, and I've tied it in with my veterinary career. So he's actually helping me lead that group. So, um, yeah, people have been posting every day and like all the members are giving them such amazing feedback. Dr. Richmond has been giving them awesome feedback. And like every time I open up my Facebook, there's more requests. So it shows how great. prevalent wow. this issue is right. in yeah. this field. The way that like people enter the group and they're just like spilling it, letting it all go. And how many of them say, I can't talk about this with any of my colleagues. So yeah, it's been really great. Wow, I'm, I'm so that's glad amazing. I just mentioned that. Yeah, so I'm so
1: happy. <laughs> that's that's awesome to yeah, hear. Yeah, we'll, we'll
0: definitely share that. We'll share that in the show notes.
1: Yeah, about. for sure. It, it, and in such short order that it's already been so well received. And I
2: know I love it.
1: So impactful for for people already. That's amazing. So c- c- congratulations with that.
2: Oh, thanks. Yeah, and I was just saying, we made sure in order to join the group, you have to answer some questions specific about your recovery, because. Again, it's not like a 12-step meeting, it's not AA, but one thing about AA is you can't just bring your friend in Mm -hmm. because it's supposed to be a safe space that everybody knows that every single person in that room can understand where they're coming from. And we want this group to be that as well too. So you have to answer questions. And if somebody either doesn't answer the questions or says that they're not sober or in recovery, then they don't get in the group. So hopefully that creates like a space where people feel comfortable to share their story, so.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Is there anything else, you know, through your journey with any of this stuff that we haven't touched on that you feel you would want to get out to our listeners or that you feel is important to cover as well? Is there anything we've missed?
2: Um, I feel like we kind of hit all the big points, but I guess the only additional thing that I can add to it is, again, just feeding off what we were saying before. Try to be understanding of your colleagues. If you do think that somebody is struggling with addiction or alcoholism, just please try to offer compassion um again like I totally understand setting boundaries with people protecting your own mental health but just try to understand that there's a lot of layers to these issues and um I don't think you'll ever regret being there to offer someone kind words or support in these situations so yeah just maybe try to show a little bit of compassion um and this just goes for anybody we never know what anybody is experiencing Mm -hmm. outside of work Mm -hmm. so in general just try to offer a bit more kindness. And I think it, it makes a big difference at the end of the day.
0: And is there anyone else or another topic that you feel like we should interview or or discuss on a future episode?
2: I think I've like recently been really interested in hearing about um, people who deal with chronic illness working in vet med mm, because, yeah, um, yeah I, I know a few colleagues, uh, Vet Tech Kelsey is one of them that I know in the past couple of years, she's had to step back quite a bit and kind of readjust her career to fit her chronic illness needs which has been really impactful to her life and i know that there's so many veterinary professionals that deal with it so i think that would be really yeah. interesting especially because it's another hidden illness
1: right 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 you
2: right. can't see so i think that'd be interesting
1: yeah yeah absolutely i was gonna say we've got a couple people i think we can reach out to yeah so yeah, yeah we do
2: cool cool
1: fantastic all
0: right well, well now we're down to your would you rather question and i know we gave you a would you rather question Before, but I like the shock value of it, so I'm giving you a different Mm. one. Okay,
2: okay. I was wondering.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So, would you rather never get another present in your life, but you always pick the perfect present for everyone else? Or you keep getting presents, but every gift you give is terrible?
2: (laughs) Mm. Oh, man. That's so tough. You know, I'm going to go with. I don't want any more gifts, but I want my gifts to be good because, um, yeah, I don't know. I guess I'm not a things person, but I get really invested in the gifts that I give people. Like, So I want a good reaction. So Excellent. I, th- I think I'm gonna yeah. with that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I'm, I'm the same way. I, I That's one of the things that stresses me out so much about Christmas is like, I don't, I don't know what to get for people. And when same. it's terrible, I just feel I feel terrible and it just ruins a whole holiday for me. I'd rather get same. nothing but that's give for people. That's why gifts. you don't like Christmas. <laughs> totally. It's one of the reasons.
2: <laughs> Wow. We're we're un- we're unburying we're, yeah. un- a lot yeah. of we're things un- for we're you. We're unpacking some I'm
0: more sorry, stuff. I'm sorry, Amber. Yeah.
1: I don't need to expose you to that. We, that's, a, that's a different discussion <laughs> for a different day.
2: Oh, okay. Yeah, we'll talk about You can have your own mental health episode, okay? That's right. Yes, we'll yes. We'll talk about that. <laughs> uh,
0: we'll they have like a seasonal <laughs> depression uh, episode and we'll Ooh, talk yes, about why for sure. <laughs> for
2: sure. <laughs> your gift-giving trauma. Yeah. You know? uh,
1: <laughs> well, thank you so much, Amber, for taking the time out to talk to us, actually twice, um, because we re- had... Yes, and
0: hopefully. There won't be a
1: third. Hopefully, time there won't be episode. a third. Oh we, we had to re record about so, three quarters Yeah, <laughs> for sure. We had to re record about three quarters of this. So, thank you so much for uh, for taking yeah. the time out twice and, um, and answering all the questions totally. the same way the second time. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no worries, but no uh, worries but it was it was great to reconnect with you, and thank you so much for being open and honest about all of this. Um, I think a lot of people are going to be able to relate to it. I think the Facebook group is going to be so helpful and impactful for so many people. So thank you very much for doing that, getting that started. Best of to
2: give me the idea, of
1: course. <laughs> Best of luck on your continued time there uh, in Chiang Mai, and uh, we hope to connect with you again soon.
2: Yeah, definitely. I would love that. Thank you for having
1: me. <laughs> You're welcome. All right, caffeinators, you guys take care and we'll talk to you again soon. Bye. Bye, everybody. Hello, caffeinators. We wanted to thank Dog Days Consulting for managing our social media and helping with the interior design here at the Vet Tech Cafe. They don't just do social media, they can help you identify your brand through brand coaching. The founder is a CVPM with 15 years' experience in veterinary practice management. They are a small business proudly serving the veterinary community, and we are thrilled to be working with them. Check them out at www.dogdaysconsulting.com. Hey, caffeinators! We would like to thank you for listening to the Vet Tech Cafe podcast today. As everybody is well aware by now, we often talk about difficult issues that face our profession. In addition, we chat with colleagues and leaders in our field who have strong opinions of these issues. Those opinions expressed by either Dave or Jeff as the hosts, or those opinions expressed by our guests, are their opinions alone and do not represent any other person, business, institution, or any other entity inside or outside of the scope of veterinary medicine. If you have any any questions relating to this, please email us at vettechcafe at gmail.com or visit our website www.vettechcafe.com. Lastly, whatever platform you utilize to hear our dulcet tones, please rate and review our podcast and like and follow our Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn pages as well to see what we're up to. From all of us at the VetTech Cafe, have yourself a great day.